So if you have your Bibles, you can look at uh, Matthew 21, verses uh, 33 to 34. The, this is a, a parable that depicts, depicts to us how horrible a sin it is to reject the Lord Jesus Christ. And when, what's uh, interesting about this parable is that when, when the, the audience that Jesus is targeting is completely unaware that Jesus is talking about them. They're unaware that they are rejecting God's word. The audience that Jesus is targeting is unaware that he is, they are rejecting God's prophet. They are unaware that they are rejecting God himself. And this, this parable depicts to us that if you reject Jesus Christ, you reject his word. And you, if you reject God's word, you reject Jesus Christ. And, and this is r applicable to our culture today. Because there are people today who believe that you can have Jesus but reject the Bible. There are people today who believe that you can have the Bible and reject Jesus. And do you guys have any examples of that? People today who think they can, you know, they say they have, they, they believe God's word, but they reject his son. Or they believe, they say, I have Jesus, but they reject the word of God. Any examples of that today, Anne-Marie? I believe in God, you know, and I believe that God loves everybody and that um, he, you know, all roads lead to, to heaven. Right, right. All roads lead to heaven, and they reject what God has said in his word in John fourteen six, For I am the way, the truth, and the life. Any other examples of how uh, people say they believe in Jesus but reject his word or say they believe in God's word but reject Christ? I believe the liberal churches are a good example of this. These are people who say they believe God's... Uh, they say, I believe in Jesus, but they reject that Jesus is God in flesh. They reject that Jesus uh, rose again bodily from the grave. They reject the, the, the miracles of Christ. Uh, another example of, uh, of this is the unbelieving Jews. The, the unbelieving Jews, they say they believe God's word, but they reject God's Son. And Jesus taught us that all the scriptures speak of Him. So, so this is a parable that once again illustrates that you cannot say you accept God's Son and reject His Word. You cannot say you accept God's Word and reject His Son. And, and our parable today is Matthew 21, verses 33 to 44. The, the parable says uh, in verse 33, Hear another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to the tenants and went into another country. When the seasons for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. 
But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to the other tenants who will give him the fruits of their seasons. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is a marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on the stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. We're going to um, bow down for a word of prayer. Father God, we just thank you, Lord, for this evening. We can gather together uh, and hear the word of God. We thank you, Lord. The grass withers, the, the flower fades, but your word abides forever. We pray, Lord, that so many times we can be apathetic. So many times we can be blinded to who you are and your goodness in our lives. We pray, Lord, this evening that you would uh, open our eyes to all the blessings and privileges that you have by your grace bestowed upon us. Open our eyes that that we may behold your glory. We pray, we pray, Lord, that open our eyes that and convict our hearts that we, it may lead us, that your goodness may lead us to repentance. We pray, Lord, that you speak to our hearts. Empower me to speak uh, effectively. In Jesus' name I pray. So in, in this parable that Jesus tells us, he, he, he gives us a parable of a vineyard. And this vineyard, and the first thing we want to see is the illustration that uh, Jesus gives us. And it, this is an illustration of a vineyard. And this vineyard is Israel. And it is, and it is God who plants this vineyard. This parable that Jesus spoke, the, uh, the, this, Jesus spoke to an audience, and this audience were made up of the leaders of Israel. This audience compromised of, of the chief priests, of the Pharisees, of the Sadducees, the scribes, and this was the crowd that Jesus spoke to when he uh, taught this parable. And what's unique about this uh, group of people that Jesus talked to was these were men who knew their Bibles. They knew their Bibles like the back of their hands. They were steeped in the Old Testament. And as Jesus gave this parable of the vineyard, immediately what came to their mind was the Old Testament text. Isaiah 5, 1-7. And this is exactly where Jesus pulls the imagery of the parable from. Isaiah 5, 1-7. In Isaiah 5, it says, Let me sing for my beloved my song, love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall and it shall be trampled down. I will make it waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed and briars and thorns shall grow up. And I also will command the clouds that the rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. 
and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting, and he looked for justice, and behold, bloodshed for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. So this passage in Isaiah 5 shows us that this vineyard is Israel. And God is the landowner, the servants are his prophets, and the son is Jesus Christ. And the tenants, the wicked tenants this parable speaks of, are, are the Jewish leaders at that time. So in our text, uh, verse 33, here another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to the tenants and went in to another country. So to understand this passage more deeply, you have to understand the uh, ancient back backdrop of the passage. And in, in Palestine, the hill countries were covered with grape vineyards. And it was common at that time for a wealthy person to come and buy a plot of land. And he would work that land. He would, he would make it in such a way that it can produce fruit and yield them profit. And, and what this wealthy landowner does is he built a fence around, around this vineyard. And this fence served a purpose to ward off any wild animals that might come and eat the produce, any, prevent any burglars or thieves to come and, in at night and steal the produce. And, and it protected the vineyard from any invaders. And here it says the owner of the vineyard himself dug a wine press. And in biblical times, when you dig, dig a wine press, there were, there were two basins. There were a bottom basin and a top basin. The bottom basin was hewn out of a rock. And, and there was a top basin, and it was, connect, and there was connected by a channel. And in the top basin, the, the tenants, the farmer tenants, will go and they put their grapes that they collected from the vineyard, and they'll trample it, the grapes underfoot. And the juices from the grapes will go through the channel down to the bottom basin. And, and the juice from the uh, grapes will begin to uh, come up to, on top, and the sediments will settle to the bottom, and they'll scoop the juice and put them in wineskins and produce wine. And this was something that the owner of the vineyard dug up and created. Not only that, but this, the owner of the vineyard created a tower. And, and the tower at that time, it served three purposes. The tower that they created in the vineyard, it was a place for storage. So the farmer tenants who worked the fields all day had all these equipment, had all these instruments, and the tower was a place where they can store the instruments. Also, the, the tower that the, um, we see here also was a place of, of shelter. When the farmer tenants who work all day long in the hard labor, in the sun, in the toil, in their sweat, wanted to get rest, they didn't have to go far away to some other land, but right where they're working, in the convenience of their work, they can go right to the tower and find a lodge and rest. The, also, the, this tower provided a place of safety because the farmer tenants can go up to the tower and see from afar, look at the whole horizon and see if there's any invaders coming. They can see if any wild animals are approaching. And what we see here is the owner of the vineyard 
absolutely does all the work. He, he, he puts a fence around the place. He, he digs a wine press. He creates a tower. This shows this. And then he lends this vineyard to the farmer tenants. So it shows us that, and the owner of the land represents God himself. And this shows us that when God gives a task, he also provides the means to do the task. See, God always, God commands us to obey, but he always empowers his people to obey him. Verse 34 says, When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruits. So in ancient times, in terms of dealing with the land, so the, the, land, the owner of the land purchased a plot of land. Now, to make money off the land, he lends it to farmer tenants. And there were two ways at that time to deal with property in terms of real estate. Either you can rent the land off to somebody and they'll pay you the rent money, or you can lend the land to somebody and they work that land and give you a share of their produce. And that's exactly what happened in this parable. The farmer tenant rented the land from the owner and he was required to give him a, a share of his produce. Whether it was a good season or a bad season, he had to give him a share of the produce for, for using the land. And the, the, the owner of the land here, he, he, was a, he gave the land to the tenant and went away probably to the Mediterranean to find more work or to be away with his family. So this was an absentee landlord. He so entrusted the land to the farmer tenants that they would be faithful, that they will be fruitful, that they will be productive, and yield the crop and profit for him that the, the owner of the land went away. And this shows us that, that God entrusts us with work to do. Every task that we receive is, is entrusted us to us by God. And I want to ask you, what are some tasks that God has entrusted us with? Amen. God has entrusted us, especially the, us as the local church, with the Great Commission to go into all the world and preach the gospel and make disciples. So what a great... Uh, what a great, nothing greater God can entrust us with, with the treasure of the gospel. Anything else that God has entrusted us with? Yes, sister. Being sensitive to the needs of others, even if they don't cry out or say that they need help, but just um, being empathetic and kind of sensing if someone is in need and helping them. Amen. To wash her with the word and love her as Christ loves the church. Oh yeah, that's a big one. Along with my kids too. Mm. To disciple them and and be um, you know, the one to show them the way, which is Christ. Amen. So as husbands, one day God's going to give us, we have to give an account to God. Do we present our brides as a bride without spot or blemish? Do we disciple them? Our children also, do we bring them up in the fear and the admonition of the Lord?
Pastor Bob. dealing primarily, you know, Israel were custodians of God's law, of God's revelation. So in the same sense, we're custodians of God's revelation in the new covenant. And um, that's the fruit that Christ is looking for. Hmm. I don't want to get too deep in. (laughs) I would just add to that, that he's entrusted us with the word of God to be faithful to the word of God, more so teachers and preachers and pastors to be faithful in the midst of an a crooked generation. Mm. I would just note that maybe whatever gifts that God has given us, um, in, including scripture, like I, I would say that all of those, we are, the, all the gifts that we're entrusted to, we have a responsibility to use those gifts in a way that propagates God's mission in the gospel. I'll add one more thing. I think to be a good steward of our time, I mean, we have so many distractions today. Satan is doing laps around Mm. us if we let him do it. You know, we have social media and these little devices, computers in our pocket that can just serve as a way to take us away from him. But we have Mm. to be very cognizant of the distractions that we have that steal our time away from God. Mm. Amen. So each, each and every one of those tasks you just mentioned, just like the uh, owner of the vineyard uh, uh, called the tenants to attack and equipped them, provided the wine press, provided the tower, provided everything they needed to do to do those tasks. In the same way, God has provided us everything we knew to to do the task that he has called us to do. In 2 Timothy 3.17, it says, The word of God makes, equips us and makes us competent for every good work. So the word of God equips husbands to disciple and wash their wives with the water of the word. The word of God equips us so we go out into the world and preach the gospel to those who are lost and dying and going to hell. It, it, the word of God equips us so we disciple believers to maturity and full stature in Jesus Christ. The word of God equips us to bring children who may be naive, to bring them up so they be wise unto salvation. So they, they grow up in the fear of God. So it's the word of God. So every task that God has called us to, God equips us by his word to accomplish that task. He empowers us by his spirit to do his will. In our, our verse 20, 34, it says, when the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. Uh, no, sorry, in verse 35, it says, And the tenants took his servant and beat one, and killed another, and stoned another. So we see the, the first servant was beaten. Then another came, and that servant was murdered. And another came, and that servant was stoned. So this ser- the servants that is mentioned in this uh, passage that we read, they're the prophets. The, the tenants are the, the Jewish leaders. Israel had a long history of killing its prophets. Jezebel killed hundreds of the Lord's prophets. Tradition tells us that Isaiah was sawn in two. Tradition tells that, that Jeremiah was stoned to death. Zechariah was murdered in God's own temple. Elijah ran for his life. And just, just like this morning where Bob was talking about John the, 
Baptist, the child prophet, who in at, maybe at six months he leaped in his mother's womb and was filled with the Holy Spirit. Jesus said that at, at one born of woman, there's no one greater than John the Baptist. He was beheaded and his head was served on a platter. Jesus says in Matthew 23:37, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you are not willing. Here are men that should be heard carrying the oracles of God. Here are men who are proclaimers of the truth. Here are men who are representatives of God, but they are rejected and they are killed. And so we see that God's messengers, God's prophets were rejected in times past. But I want to, I want to ask you a question. Have things changed today? Is the uh, is receptivity and the treatment of God's servants and his message different today than it was in times past? Emery? You know, if you subscribe to the voice of martyrs, um, mm. there are people all over the world that are dying for Christ. People that um, just this last week, this man was, I read about this man in, I think it was China, and he was put in jail for his faith and when he ja he gained the trust of the gods he they gave him more freedom and he went home all he wanted was his bible and when the gods discovered that he had gotten the his the bible um he was beaten mercilessly so you know and I think in some ways we're seeing that here to a certain degree with the prejudice, the way things, it's always been divided. I don't think anything's all that new, but the gap is getting wider. And you can't disagree with people without being canceled. Mm -hmm. And that, I, you know, that eventually can lead to other things and just what we saw happen in Canada as well with the pastors um, being arrested. Pastor mm -hmm. Bob. It's amazing whenever this parable is referred to, I how, the, the real message there is this is God's vineyard mm. and the tenants are acting like it's theirs mm. the master sends his servants in and they beat them, they kick them out they, they think it's their vineyard, their tenants but they think it's theirs mm. that always and, and I think that that's really the heart of the issue there is that Israel didn't understand their place they forgot it was the Lord who owned them. It was the mm -hmm. Lord who owned Israel. They forgot the covenant that, that the Lord is sovereign. They're the vassal. Mm -hmm. 
And I, I think this, you're asking, how does this translate into today? This is Christ's church, not mm. my church. Mm. I grimace when pastors say my church. Mm. Or, or refer to another person. Well, that's John MacArthur's church. No, it's not John. It's just Christ's mm. church. And when we become possessive of it and think it's ours and we own it, some of these churches that have been around a while, people that have been around a while, they get a country club mentality. You ever go to, well, you know, you ever deal with people in a country club? I did. I had to work with them in the past because they pay their dues and been, they think they own it and they're going to dictate everything. And it's the same thing here. I think people just don't understand that this is the church of Christ. And if God sends his servants who I believe are preachers and teachers and there are prophetic voices, especially when the church is apostate, because that's really the issue. And prophetic voices are declaring to Christ's church there's apostasy. And then what do we do? We excommunicate them. We silence them. We, I mean, this is not outside persecution. This is inside. This is what happens when God raises up prophetic voices to confront apostasy in, in, in his church. Look at the Episcopalian church. Look at the, men, uh, the Methodist church. Look at the mainline Protestant churches today. Good examples of the vineyard. Mm. In an article by the director of Global Research, John, Justin D. Long said that more people have died for their faith in the 20th century and all previous centuries combined. During the, this century, we have documented cases in excess of 26 million martyrs. So from AD 33 to 1900, we have documented cases of 14 million martyrs. So from AD 33 to 1900, 14 million martyrs. And just in the 20th century, 26 million martyrs. In this, it was the second century church father, Tertullian, who said, the, the blood of the martyrs, is the seed of the church. And we, we ought to learn from the faithful witnesses and martyrs that went before us, not, not to cower in fear, but as we're living in a society where the, the, the hostility is growing more and more from, from people, from the government, against Christianity and against Christian beliefs, we must stand firm and, and bold and, and, and stand our ground. And, and, uh, and I, I often hear people say, I don't want kids to be born into a time like this. But God providentially has us in this time period. We were not born in the 1600s with, with the Puritans. We were not born in the 2nd century. In the 1st century, we were, we were born to stand and fight in the 21st century. So God calls us in, in such a time as this. There's a reason, there's a purpose in God's providential plan that we're here in 2021. And despite how crazy the world is going, it seems like the only people that have sanity today is Christians. So, and persecution is not, is not, it should not be something strange to the Christian, but it's something that should be expected. And, and we often hear people say that, that Christians in the United States don't fear, uh, don't face or uh, real persecution. What do you guys think? That the Christians here in the United States is not something they experience persecution. Uh, 
Uh, I would have to say that uh, um, no matter, um, I mean, w we all eventually have to face the world eventually, right? And our kids will have to go face the world eventually too and decide to be followers of Christ or follow the ways of the world, right? So I think in ways uh, sometimes we don't even know, we experience, I guess, a small form of persecution and when maybe somebody mocks us at work or mm -hmm. they make fun of us, for our beliefs or they just mock our beliefs uh, that could be a form of persecution in a way or um but on the intensity level of anything that happened in the early church we were just talking about this and, um i don't think you know we'll i i can't say we'll never come close to that but um for sure but you know they faced such a different it was such a different culture and it was uh the Roman government at times was so anti-Christian, especially during the reign of uh, Nero and uh, other empires. Uh, uh, um, so, I, you know, I guess you could face um, persecution every day. You know, you could face it from your family even, you know, if they ostracize you because you um, convert to Christianity. So it's... I guess it depends on the individual, but I guess if you are a true Christian, too, you have to recognize you'll face some form of persecution, even on a small level, at some point in your life. Yeah. Again, I, I want to reiterate, I believe that this is referring strictly to within God's church. In the Old Testament, within Israel, the New Covenant within the church. And yes, although there's persecution from the outside of the unbelievers... Who were the prophets murdered by? They were murdered by their own people, by the mm -hmm. Israelites. And I believe that there are so many people in the, see, in the church today, whenever somebody wants to really live for Christ, when they really want to live for holiness, and when they speak out against the things in the church that are corrupt or ungodly, you see the persecution. Sometimes the persecution within the church is far worse than it could be outside the church. Mm. Uh, I know a couple examples of that. Um, Non-tenant, he's a, a man that I've, I've uh, worked with. I've, I've seen a lot of his material. His story was um, he openly um, he, he declared the word of God to his congregation, and they excommunicated him because he was loud, and he would open the scriptures, reason with them about the, the gospel, about the heresies of the church, or about malpractice, and they they got rid of him and uh, now he's stuck in in New Zealand he can't go anywhere because of mandates I think the specific thing that he was um, preaching against in the church was their was their concept of zoom church they were okay with the state being God rather than Christ being God they wanted Caesar to be Lord and not Christ and that's his main thing that he, he was excommunicated for but uh, I, I can I could definitely see some some examples of that but there the large majority, even of Reformed Christians, I mean, they're silent. We're, we are like sheep. We, we go wherever our, our, whatever's most comfortable for us. And, um, yeah, I guess in the, in the context of persecution within the church, I think that's, that's what I would say. In my own case, I mean, I mean, I've seen some of that. Like, but I think for the gospel's sake... I, 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 I don't know. I haven't seen a lot of that. There's just we, we lack men who are willing to to stand up and and speak out against um, the the 
diminishing of the gospel in the church. And uh, maybe that's a testimony against us, in a sense. I also think, you know, there's a lot of controversial issues in the past couple of years. You know, like, for instance, the social justice issue. And so many people are afraid to speak up on it. Mm-hmm. And, and meanwhile, you know, there's an intimidation from those on the left side of the issue. And, and they intimidate people to speak up. How dare you? And so, you know, I'm not saying we should be loud and, you know, we shouldn't be John the Baptist out there and, you know, hollering people down. And, you know, we have to be, use wisdom in how we approach things. But um, I, I feel as if there's a way within the modern church that we could be silenced and intimidated from those within, those within the Reformed Church even. Uh, some of the big weeks, you know, they got clout and they got status and they, they intimidate people to keep their mouths shut. I had two specific instances of persecution in the United States. Mm-hmm. Once I was in train and sharing gospel with somebody sitting beside me. The person from behind seat came up and threatened me to kill. And the rest of the people in the train wanted to call police. I asked them to calm down and other things. That one thing happened in the United States, but more often what I experience is, I'm a scientist, um, and in the research world, if I dare to say that I believe in God, they form an opinion of me that I'm not a scientist. (laughs) From now on, they expect, uh, from then they expect me not to associate with, or as a scientist, you need to get funds or something like that. They wouldn't expect my papers to be of good quality, Mm. or. They, they, they think he should not be given funds because he's not a real scientist. Wow, that's a great example, Naveen. Um, so, so here in the United States, we might not face the physical harm that our brothers and sisters might face in northern Nigeria, in Middle East, in India. But nonetheless, we, we would face not physical persecution, but for the name of for, for having Christian beliefs, such as believing homosexuality is a sin, believing in abortion is a sin, believing in creation, the uh, world can come and slander us, even from the church. World, the church and the world, some professing believers and unbelievers can slander us, malign us. Even we can face verbal abuse as Christians. And it goes exactly what the Bible says. Those who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. So if, you're, if you haven't faced any persecution in any form in your life, we have to ask ourselves, how godly are we living for the Lord? How, how, light, how, how bright is our light shining for the Lord Jesus Christ? Because as our light shines in the world, the, the heat will begin to increase. Persecution will come either from the inside or the out. And, and we'll face some level of form of persecution. It might not be as severe as martyrdom, but verbal abuse, slander, being maligned, people rejecting your scientific papers that, for having Christian beliefs, that is a form of persecution. Verse 36 says, Again, he sent other sermons more than the first, and they did the same to them. What happened to these servants is, is, is a case that would not normally happen. Normally, you would send your servants, and they will give them the produce, and they'll, they'll give a third or a half of the produce, and he'll go on their way to the owner and give the produce. But here, we see the servants was beaten. The servants were stoned. The servants were killed. 
And the fact that once one servant is killed, God sends more servants, that just displays the, the, the patience of God. It, it would have been, been just for God to, once one servant, the, 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 the land is, the, the, the owner of the land owns that land, so he has every right on the land. So it would have been just for the owner of the land, once one of his servants were killed, it would have been just for the owner to send two hitmen there and finish off the wicked tenants. But that's not what happens. He sends another tenant, and this displays the, the kindness of God, the, the benevolence of God, the love of God, of sending prophet after prophet, messenger after messenger. Not only does this display the patience of God, but this also reveals to us the, the, the fallen state of humanity, how in humanity, in their fallen states, there are enemies of God. Jonathan Edwards was one of America's greatest theologians, and he was the former president of Princeton. And he, in his works, defines for us how we are God's enemies in several different ways. He says we are God's enemies in our affections. We, as fallen beings, in our unregenerate state, we love what God hates and hates what God loves. And we see that in, in this world, where this world, where God loves unborn babies, but this world hates unborn babies. They'll murder them from the womb. Millions and millions ever since Roe versus Wade has passed have been slaughtered in the womb. God loves marriage, but this world has, has uh, put divorce on a pedestal and, uh, and celebrates um, licentiousness and fornication and destroys the, the family, the concept of the family. God's enemies, Jonathan Edwards goes on to say that we're God's enemies in the dislike of our souls. Fallen men will do everything in their, in their ability, everything in their power to keep God at a distance. When fallen man sins, he doesn't run to God, but he, he hides from God. Through, the Bible says in Romans, he suppresses the truth and unrighteousness. He would hide from God, try to quiet his conscience and different ways. He would either use drugs to quiet his conscience. He would use false religion to quiet his conscience. He would, if he has a guilty conscience, he would try to drink away his sorrows and pain. Just this year, when, when uh, me, my brothers, and Ben, we went to G3, and uh, uh, once we left G3, we was on our way back home. We entered the uh, train platform, and at the same time as G3 was a, a pro-abortion feminist rally. And they were on their way home too. So they all came on the platform. And one woman holding a sign that was for abortion uh, came next to us. And she had her daughter with her. And then Ben proceeded to share the gospel with this woman. And once Ben began to proceed to try to share the gospel with this woman, she said she doesn't want to hear it and plugged the, uh, the ear of her child. And, and that's what that shows, that men in their unregenerate natural state are enemies of God. They hate God. They don't want to hear His word. They don't want to hear His message. They, they reject God's word. They reject God's son. And they reject God, God's people. Jonathan Edwards also says that we are enemies of God in our practice. See, although fallen man cannot injure God, fallen man will try everything in his power to prevent God's kingdom from advancing, they'll try everything in their power to prevent God's plan from going forward. 
just like Ephesians says, they are under the power of the evil one. And whatever means possible, they are Satan's emissaries. to do. They're taken captive by Satan to do his will. So they would persecute God's people, persecute God's messengers, kill God's prophets, because they are enemies of God. In verse 37, it says, Finally he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son, But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. So they mocked, they ridiculed, they persecuted the prophets. But now God has sent his only begotten son. What astounding grace and mercy it is that generation after generation, year after year, the prophets were rejected. But the Bible says in Galatians, when the fullness of time has come, God, God sent forth His Son, born of a virgin, to redeem those who are under the law. Jesus Christ is the one who all the types and shadows of the Old Testament pointed to. He is the one whom all the prophets point to. He is the one who all the scriptures attest to. And, the, and it says they killed them. And, and when, they, when, the, when the parable says they killed them, that is a reference to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Verse 39 says, And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed them. And in the Bible it says Jesus was crucified outside the gates of Jerusalem. In Hebrews 13.12, the Bible says, So Jesus also suffered outside the gate, in order, for, in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. So Jesus, the sinless son of God, was treated as a common criminal. And he was put outside the gates of Jerusalem. That was a place of shame. That, that, that was a place of disgrace. And here we see the most heinous act in all the universe. Here is the, the creator of the heavens and the earth, the one who holds the word the whole world is by the very word of his power, and they crucified him. The, 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 peop- the leaders of Israel, the nation of Israel, failed to give God what is his. They failed to glorify God. They failed to heed the prophets' warning to repent. They failed the, to heed the warnings of the prophets. John came in the wilderness and, 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 and told the people of Israel, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. They, they failed to heed the words of the prophets and they failed to give God what is rightfully His. In, in, in what way in our lives do we fail to give God what is rightfully His? Pastor Bob. Our obedience. Amen. Or the opposite of that, people will not give him the honor that he deserves because of those gifts. So it's not of, you know, my own doing, it's of God, the Holy Spirit through me who has allowed me to do so and so. But 
people think that it's just me, 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 and it, that's not the case. Or they think it's luck, you know, if they mm. go that route. Yeah. They fail to give God the glory. They give the glory to some other thing. In, in regards to our obedience, even in First Corinthians 6, I believe, the argument that Paul makes there is that in terms of sexual immorality, we should be obedient in terms of that because the Bible says you were bought with the price. So glorify God in your bodies. And, and so now we're going to look at the, the conclusion of our parable. In Matthew 21, verses 40 to 41, it says, When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? <clears throat> the crowd then at that response, he will put those wretches to a miserable debt and let out the vineyards to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. So in a, in a rabbinic way, Jesus asked the, the crowd at that time, the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, what would he do to those uh, tenants? And the, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, in their blindness, re- replies, put them to a miserable death. They had no idea once they said that, they, they, they were basically pronouncing their own condemnation and judgment. In verse 41, they said to him, He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. So that reference there, he will give his vineyard to other tenants. That's a reference to the Gentiles. John 1.12 says, To as many as received them, to them he gave the right to become children of God. So I want to ask you, who are the true people of God? And, and this can be, even in our Christian community, this can be controversial because the Presbyterians teach that the true people of God are unregenerate children of believers. The dispensationalists teach that the true believers of God are unbelieving Jews. So who would you say is the uh, true people of God? Rick? Uh-huh. Children of Abraham from the original covenant. That's all I have. <laughs> I'm meeting <I'm> sorry. <laughs> Circumcise the flesh of their heart. Those who've been grafted in. Of course it's by faith through grace that we've been saved. So if we don't if God hasn't chosen us. There's nothing we could do to save us, save ourselves. So it's those who God has chosen, mm-hmm. whether it's the uh, um, whether it's the Jews or the Gentiles. Man. Uh. To put, it sim- to put it simply, it just, you know, uh, those who are of faith, those who were born again, Jesus says you must be born again mm. to enter the, into the kingdom. So, Right. Now, now, regard to our dispensational brothers that say that those who are unbelieving Jews are the true people of God. Jesus looked at the religious leaders of his day and said, you are your father, the devil. And they were part of this physical seed of Abraham. He looked at the physical seed of Abraham, the Jewish leaders, and said, you are of your father, the devil. And in regards to our uh, Presbyterian 
brothers. Uh, they believe that the unbelieving children of believers are brothers. But the promise of the new covenant is that uh, in the new covenant, you don't have to tell your neighbor, know the Lord, for everyone would know the Lord from the greatest to the least. So th th every member of the new covenant experienced, like we read in the London Baptist Confession of Faith, they are experienced justification. They've experienced the W imputation, the, uh, our sins to Christ and Christ's righteousness to us. Every person in the new covenant is regenerated by the Spirit. They're born again. So who, who are the true people of God? Believers, Jews and Gentiles who believe in Jesus Christ. The Bible says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. So any Jew, any Gentile that looks to Christ can have eternal life, can be born again. 1 Peter 2.9 says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now we have the privilege of being grafted in, like Anne-Marie said, and being part of the spiritual seed of Abraham, having our hearts circumcised by faith. And now we're going to look at the explanation. In Matthew 21, verse 42, it says, Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. So just uh, imagine the audience that was there at that time. These were the, the Jewish leaders, the chief priests, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, men, like I said before, who were steeped in the Bible, who knew the Bible like the back of the hand. And Jesus uses somewhat of a sarcasm. He says, he asked them, have you never read in the scriptures? So this is something that they should have knew. And he proceeded to quote Psalm 118. And this was the psalm of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem where they was pronouncing the psalm. And, and, the, and at, when he was coming into Jerusalem, they was hailing him, son of David. So this was a messianic psalm that Jesus was pointing to. The stone that the builders rejected, the Bible says, has become the cornerstone. And the cornerstone is the, it's a, it's a, it's the stone and the architect that supports the entire building. If anything was imperfect, not cut properly, the whole foundation of the building will be compromised and the building will be unstable. And in this case, the rejected stone was the cornerstone. And Israel, when we look at the Old Testament, they, they were a stone. They were despised of the world and God's plan. Israel, Israel was a chief cornerstone. It was the nation in which God entrusted with the oracles of God. It was, the, it was the nation where God has raised the patriarch. It was the nation that God in his sovereignty chose the Messiah to be born from. And it was a nation that was despised in the world. But the chief cornerstone has a greater meaning in, in, in the Bible. In, after Pentecost, Peter declared to the Jewish leaders in Acts 4, 10-12, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which was become the cornerstone. 
And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no name given, among under, given, given to men under heaven whereby we must be saved except for the name of Christ. The greater stone than Israel is the Lord Jesus Christ. The builders that rejected Jesus Christ was the Jewish leaders. And Jesus tied Psalm 119, a messianic psalm, to this parable. And now we're going to look at the application of this parable. In, uh, verses, in Matthew 21, verses 43 to 44, it says, Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on the stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will be crushed. See, Jesus here basically tells the Sadducees, the chief priests, the Jewish leaders, that who he's speaking about, the wicked tenants, are them. The owner of the vineyard is God. The vineyard is Israel. The, the servants were his prophets. And Jesus is God's son. God prepared Israel. Israel. He, he, he blessed Israel. Israel was full of beauty, promise, hope, security. Israel contained the oracles of God. Israel was a privileged nation. Instead of giving glory to God, instead of living in obedience to God, instead of giving praise and worship to God, Israel rejected and persecuted the prophets. Israel time and time again fell into idolatry. Israel failed to fulfill their calling. The Jewish leaders rejected Christ, who were their only hope of salvation. So in, in verse 43, we see in 44, we see God's judgment on unbelieving Israel and Israel's ungodly leaders. In 44, it says, And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. So the Jewish leaders fell on Christ and put him to death, and they themselves will be broken to pieces. And if Christ falls on anybody, they will be crushed. Here we see the justice of God. We see the wrath, the, the holiness of God displayed. The, for those who heed to the call of the gospel to repent and believe in Jesus Christ and receive Him as Savior, those who reject Christ, reject His messengers, will one day face Him as judge. Those who fail to heed the gospel call and receive Christ as deliverer, one day will be destroyed under the fury of His wrath. But what amazing patience is displayed of God in this parable. We see that Israel, stubborn in their unbelief, stubborn in their sins, reject God and His Word and in love, despite being His enemies, this is the good news. Just like Israel was, we were stubborn in our sin. We were enemies of God in word, thought, and deed, but God has come into this world to die for rebels. And even while we were sinners, the Bible says, Christ died for the ungodly. And how many times that God, you know, call us to repentance, to beckon us to come? Just like in this parable, the, the tenants ate the landowner's food, they lived on the landowner's land, they breathed the landowner's air. In the same way, we breathe God's air. We live in God's world. We, live, we experience God's blessings. And the Bible says, the goodness of God shall lead us to repentance. 
let us let us give thanks to God for all the privileges that God has given us. He has given us Bibles. He has He has given us a, a biblical church. He has given us families. We we are a privileged people. But the Bible says to to as many as is given. To that that much more He will require require of us. We, God has given us so much light. Now God has called us to be a people who are fruitful, that people that glorify God and honor God, honor God. But those who reject God's word, those who reject God's messengers, one day, just like we see in this parable, God's patience would no longer be there. But instead, they will face the tsunami of God's wrath. So, so, for all of eternity, they will face the crushing wrath of God's Son. The Bible says, kiss the Son lest we be angry. You, any questions? Say, um, like you said, that we see the long-suffering that God has towards humanity, that not only was he sending messengers and prophets, right, and... and uh, different kind of people but in that long suffering he he sent the greatest gift possible his son to to demonstrate his love for us and yet he didn't have to do that cuz he could have just eliminated us mm. he could have he could have took our breath and we would have been in hell suffering and yet because of his long suffering and his kindness towards us mm. He sent his son Amen. Uh, to die for us and take that penalty that we deserved. Hebrews 1 says, God in sundry times and diverse manners has spoken to the fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. There is no other prophet that's coming. There's no other messenger that's coming. Amen. If you reject Jesus Christ, there is no other hope for you. Thank you, Tom. You did a great job. Uh, I just wanted to add a final comment. Going back to the imagery there of the vineyard and Israel failing to fulfill the mission that God gave them and, and thinking in their own minds that they owned the vineyard themselves, casting out the servants and ultimately murdering the Son of God. The vineyard was taken from them. In AD 70, Israel was evicted from the land. God took his... God took his land back mm -hmm. and he gave it to the Gentiles up until maybe 50, 60, 70 years ago. But not to get too much into Israel, I want to focus just for a moment on the church because I, I believe there's a New Testament um, comparison. In Jev Revelation 3, it's a, it's a verse that's often quoted in evangelism. Behold, I knock at the door, verse 20. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come and eat with him and he with me. That, that's not what it's been said to be by the gospel present. Oh, Jesus is knocking on the door of your heart. Won't you please let him in? He doesn't need us to open up the door. He'll kick the door down. And he'll come right into our lives. That, that, that's salvation. Mm -hmm. We don't let Jesus into our hearts. 
What this is really talking about there, the context, is the church of Laodicea had essentially pushed Christ out of the church. They were having services. They were singing. They were preaching the word. But what is he saying? He says, you think you're rich. You think you've, you have it all. You, you need ISOV. You you, you're wretched. You're poor. You're miserable. They were haughty. They thought the church was theirs. They lost focus. They lost a sense of who they were. And Christ is not saying, open up your heart to me so you may be saved. No, he's saying, he's saying, let me back in the church. There are a lot of churches today where Christ is not welcome. His name is mentioned from the pulpit. They sing his name in hymns. But the presence, you know, the, the remarkable thing is of the seven churches. And in chapter one, you get a picture of Christ in the midst this magnificent vision of the Son of Man with Blake, John Foles as though dead. And he's in the midst of the seven lampstands. Those seven lampstands represent the church. It represents God's presence in the church. And he said to the church of Ephesus, repent or I will remove the lampstand. Once Christ is no longer present in the church, you're no different than Israel, fruitless. Mm. Because you could do nothing apart from him. The parable of the, the, the fig tree, or the, the, when Christ comes out of Jerusalem, there's a dead fig tree, and he cursed it that it would die even further. That's what happens when churches separate themselves from Christ, when they become man-centered, when they look to themselves and their own pride and their ego, they push Christ out, they push his servants out, and they elevate man. Just think of all the churches in America today Think of, there's a church not too far from here. We've lost people who've gone there. It's, it sickens me. They, they proclaim Christ. But I don't think Christ is present there. Thank you, Pastor Bob. That, that reminds me of uh, Third John. Uh, Diotrephes, um, he says in third in something to the church, Diotrephes, who likes to put himself out, bring him up to what he's doing, talking wicked nonsense against us, and not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers, and also stops those want to and puts them out of the church okay we'll close with the word of prayer father god we just uh come to you in the name of your son we thank you lord for this uh day that you have given us to learn from your word you said you will know the truth and the truth will set you free we pray lord that the word of god can do a work in our hearts Help us, Lord, to be uh, faithful stewards. Help us, Lord, not to uh, take your blessings and privileges to be granted, but help us to use them and uh, magnify and multiply for your glory. Help us to be fruitful Christians. Help us to uh, honor you. Uh, we thank you, Lord, for this day that you have given us. Pray, Lord, we give, you give us travel mercies at, uh, as we uh, uh, head back home. We thank you for your church. We pray, Lord, that... Uh, Help us to grow in the full stature of Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name I pray.